Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome to the show, Dressed listeners. We, as you know, are now in our fourth season. And if you didn't know before, now you know. Fashion (laughs) is about much more than mere aesthetics. It is intimately linked to a whole host of topics that reflect our personal, societal, and even global identities. I mean, anything from religion, gender, race, sexuality, politics, you name it. I think we've done our best to cover all of these topics on the show. And really, the way we clothe and adorn our bodies matter. And this applies to everything from the clothes we wear to the nails we or our beloved nail artisans and technicians decorate for us. Which leads us directly to our topic today, because in America, especially, you would be hard-pressed to find a city that does not have a nail salon, or usually even multiple nail salons owned by Vietnamese families. But just how did Vietnamese immigrants come to dominate this $8 billion industry? To find out, we watched the PBS documentary, Nailed It, by filmmaker Adele Pham, and we are so excited that she is going to join us today. Adele, welcome to Dress. Adele, welcome to Dressed. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So you are an activist and a filmmaker. And actually, I believe that you are the first documentary filmmaker that we've had on the show. So this is exciting. Uh, What inspired this documentary that explores the histories and stories behind the Vietnamese nail industry? Well, in America, there is such a stereotype of what the Asian nail salon is. And growing up in America, you are really siphoned off into your ethnic racial category without any kind of understanding about where your particular people may come from. And I grew up understanding that because my father is a Vietnamese refugee that was always integral to my personal story, where he came from, the Vietnam War, opposed to just being Chinese or Japanese. And I grew up in the 80s and 90s. Um, I think the world is a lot more woke right now, but we can even look at the spate of violence against Asian Americans post-pandemic. There is a lot of misunderstanding about who we are, all the places we come from, and what we represent in the hierarchy of white supremacy. So these are all really big questions that have always been swirling around my mind. And I just find that the nail salon is something people think that they know everything about, but really know very little about, including myself. Um, so there was also that, that cultural pull. Like I knew that all of these Asian nail salons are Vietnamese, where I'm coming from growing up on the West Coast. And I didn't know why. And nobody really seems to ask within the the culture. It's just this, this, um, you know, sort of auto response. Of course, 
you're in the nail industry, you're Vietnamese, but why? How did so many Vietnamese people get into this trade? And that's the question that I start the film off with. I go with my sister, we go to places called Beautiful Nail. It's kind of confused when I first read the sign though. Beautiful Nail. Just one. Nail is beautiful. Nail salons. They're everywhere. Every city, state, strip mall. Uptown, downtown. Even Walmart. When I don't have nails, I feel really naked. Like, oh my God, I need my nails. (laughs) You got beautiful fingers. You got diamonds on them. I know they look good. The nail industry is a seven and a half billion dollar industry that focuses just on nails. And more than half of these salons are Vietnamese. If you're a Vietnamese American, within two degrees of separation, you have somebody working in the nail industry, if not one degree, your auntie, your uncle, your relative, your cousin. (laughs) There's somebody you know. I'm half Vietnamese and even I have family in the business. My dad wanted me to go work for them, but I was embarrassed to be associated with doing nails. I didn't want to be that kind of Asian. Okay, honey, do you lie pedicure too? Uh, no, no, just my nails. Honey, why you don't lie? So, I stayed away. But I was always intrigued. If the nail salon is so shady... The dark side of the nail salon... ...cause something like this. It's gross. Why is there one on every corner? And how did Vietnamese come to dominate this multi-billion dollar industry? I have to say that this film is just incredible. It's enlightening, and you really take us on this journey. And I think you even say in the film that you did not expect this to be so personal, but it is part of your story, I would say, throughout. And what you reveal is, is just incredible through your research. And in the film, you say that before 1975, the Vietnamese nail salon, as we know it today, did not exist. So what was nail culture like in America before this period, before we kind of see post the nail salon? Nail salon certainly existed, but like I go into in the film, um, it was reserved for the jet set, upper class women, celebrities, people that could afford this service and perhaps special occasions like um, wedding or graduation or a funeral. I wasn't alive at this time. This is just information that I gathered um, in researching and producing the film. So you just cannot deny that the Vietnamese American people democratized this bodywork industry that was only reserved to uh, women with a lot of disposable income to pamper and care for themselves by monthly service, if not more, to keep your nails looking good. So you can see in old Hollywood photos, for example, all of the women have impeccable manicures, but again, you know, that may be from a manicurist coming to set and doing your nails. There wasn't the degree of nail salons that there are today um, by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, you can't say it didn't exist, but I feel that in the U.S. we have this stereotype in our head that the nail salon 
is an Asian space. And that, in fact, is changing right now in the world, in our country. But um, for the past 40 years, it undeniably has been. Yeah. And so your research in trying to pinpoint this origin story, the origin of Vietnamese nail salons in the United States, led you to a very specific date, a very specific place, and a very specific group of individuals. Can you tell us about what and who you found? Yeah. Um you know, this is a part of the nail salon lore uh, that Tippi Hedren was the woman who jump-started the Vietnamese nail salon by shepherding 20 Vietnamese refugees right after the end of the Vietnam War, the fall of Saigon, who had escaped to um, the U.S. from Vietnam and were in a refugee camp in Northern California where Tippi was doing humanitarian work with a nonprofit called Food for the Hungry. And she was trying to get them adjusted to this crazy new life in the U.S. after they lost everything in Vietnam. And these were upper-class women as well. They themselves uh, either were married to high-ranking South Vietnamese military officers and were able to get out of the U.S. that way or were working with the American military themselves because most people were trapped. So these are some of the earliest, if not the earliest group of uh, Vietnamese refugees to leave Vietnam after the fall of Saigon, just crazy, and in the days before. So they were really psychologically damaged from this experience. So more than just placing them in jobs, Tippi was a mother figure to them, um, which we go into in the film through a joint interview with Tippi Hedren the iconic actress from The Birds, Hitchcock's The Birds. Does everybody know who Tippi Hedren is in this podcast? I think so. I would hope so. (laughs) But, you know, Vietnamese also love beauty and celebrity, and they were very taken with the fact that this Hollywood actress is mentoring them and really mothering them in this really frightening experience in a refugee camp coming from a place where, you know, they had never really gone without before. A lot of dynamics going on. They noticed that Tippi had uh, beautiful nails because she was one of these celebrity jet-set women who had her nails done regularly. And Tippi got the idea to bring her own personal manicurist, Dusty Coots, who we really must give a lot of credit to as well, to come to the refugee camp and train these 20 Vietnamese women in the art of the manicure, thinking that they would be able to gain employment as manicurists after they left the refugee camp. And that really set it off. Tippi also helped get them educated, get them licensed with just manicuring credentials, which didn't exist at that time. So she really used her privilege and influence to be able to shepherd these women into some kind of career that she thought they would be good at leaving the refugee camp. And they had to leave a few months later because there was no heat and it was in the Weimar Mountains. So they had to start their lives um, right after they got licensed as manicurists. A lot of them did go into manicuring and actually had mixed feelings about that profession because of their background in Vietnam. It was something that they didn't aspire to be. But undoubtedly, Tippi helped them get placed into beauty salons where she also had influence. And 
Vietnamese are very chatty. I mean, you come here with absolutely nothing. You're desperate to find any kind of means to survive. And you see your people from your culture being mentored by a celebrity and making money in, you know, this profession. So of course you're going to gravitate towards it because you need something to feed your family. And I mean, that's really the remarkable thing about the story in the Vietnamese culture is that they were able to uh, retrofit an idea of manicuring into their own uh, cultural specificity and, and skills as a unit moving together as a family. So although there have been many generations of the Vietnamese nail salon, many more getting into the industry in the 80s and 90s, as we'll talk about later, that was really the spark you know, the genius of the idea coming from this group of women that really loved each other. So at every step of the way, that spark really comes from love and wanting to support other women. And it's such a beautiful story. And I have to tell our listeners who are, of course, going to go out and watch this documentary that you interview a lot of these women. You interview Tippi Hedren. There's a beautiful scene in the movie where you reunite these women. I grew to love these women. And we had fun together. Yeah, we did. It was so beautiful. See the feeling and the environment and the way we treat each other is beautiful. Because of her. She make all fun. She just create something to make us feel happy. Not lonely. Because that's a new life, new future, new everything. So it really is this incredible story about love between women. And what follows from the 1975 is this story of hope, of family, of resilience, of determination. What started in California expanded across the United States. So how did the Vietnamese nail industry blossom after 1975? Well, I think you'd really have to ask me the question about fan trap to properly answer (laughs) that story. It really is true. You know, there is sometimes some resistance to giving Tippi Hedren all of the credit for the Vietnamese nail salon. It's easy to do that because it's such a beautiful story. And I do give her all the credit because you need that spark to generate an idea that legions of people, hundreds of thousands of people can follow. But really, the nail salon as we know it didn't start in the beauty salons of Hollywood and Beverly Hills. It started in the hood in South Central LA. And so really the Vietnamese owe a debt of gratitude to black women. And this goes back to the very first nail salon chain that I know about called Mantrap, which was started by a black American woman and a Vietnamese refugee woman who came together because of happenstance, the Vietnamese were in the nail salon industry. 
Olivette Robinson, this Black American woman, ended up in Charlie Vaux's manicuring chair um, as a client. And they struck up a natural and beautiful friendship and started to really care about each other and then decided to strike out and open their own nail salon and hair salon um, called Mantrap. How did you decide it to open a salon in that neighborhood? That first one? Yes. Because that's where we live. That's where our customers were. At the corner of Cheap. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was. We had got the place, but mm-hmm. we didn't have a name, remember? Right, right. You know, we got to make something them pretty. Sexy. Yeah, we something sexy. Yeah, we gotta, we're making these women pretty, uh-huh. getting them together so they can go out and trap a man. <laughs> and we just kept on talking and talking, and pretty soon, I don't know which one of us said, <gasps> Man trap. And there was there was the name. On our window, we had a picture with the lady here with the spider web, and there's a man trapped in the spider web. <laughs> man trap. <laughs> and again, this reality of Vietnamese people seeing a successful business and then replicating it in mass happened with Man Trap. It was an overnight success. They had lines out the door. They had seven locations, I believe. And so very soon, the the nail salon industry, now specifically run by Vietnamese manicurists, um, although it was started by a, a Black and Vietnamese woman, were oversaturating Southern California. And that's where you really see this tumbleweed effect or this sojourn to the rest of the country for follow nail salon land where we can open nail salons where they don't exist yet and offer this irresistible price point that is going to bring all the women into the salon and wanting um, beautiful nails that they return every two weeks to be filled and kept up. You know, it became a huge industry across the country uh, in the, in the 80s and 90s. Also as waves of new Vietnamese refugees came to the U.S. and needed employment. Absolutely. And a lot of these Vietnamese um, individuals were bringing their, then coming here and then bringing their families here, correct? Bringing their families is also what made it such a boom industry because that family unit is, was able to keep the price point down. And I think that's what angered so many um, American manicurists. It's like, how do you compete with what you assume is one cohesive family, right? And also everybody's speaking in their own language, um, with their own system of collecting and sharing money. It's very hard to get a number of American individuals to work like that inside of a nail salon. And listen, there's a lot of infighting and a lot of drama behind the scenes, but there is a cohesion to working with your own people, specifically your very own family that's sponsoring you to the U.S. to come work in the salon to get a footing in America and then spring out and open your nail salon. I mean, it's almost like a self-replicating organism. And I think that's how a lot of people viewed it and resented it for that very reason. So what made it so successful and what built this industry and popularity of nail care and manicuring up is also what people resent about the Vietnamese nail salon industry, even today. But as you said, like this effectively democratized 
getting your nails done. This wasn't a thing that most women would have done prior to this. And democratizing the nail service is also what brought Black women into the fold. And I mean, Black women are the perpetual influencers. We are constantly taking their their style and not attributing their contribution to that, right? That's its own podcast. So by lowering the price point, you're bringing in a whole group of influencers, cultural influencers of the ages, and putting a completely new spin on what the manicure can represent. I mean, there's a a huge difference between Flojo's nails and Tippi Hedren's nails. One is a canvas for modern art. Exactly. (laughs) And the other is like a very beautifully shaped coral nail. So, you know, I, I, try, I pause on that point in the film because I think it's so important for Vietnamese people and Black people to recognize where nail art really started and to respect that and to see if we can come back together to reclaim that shared space instead of it just belonging to uh, Asian people. And it's so, it's so cool in the film, too, because you're showing like a lot of this nail art that's really booming in the 1980s and at the Man Trap Salon specifically. I mean, they're putting, I think at one point they talk about being the first to put snake skin on the nails. I couldn't decide if that was just the patterning or if they were actually putting snake skin on the nails, but they were doing just in crazy, crazy art, like you just said, as a canvas. Oh, that's real snake skin. Yeah. You know, that that's Charlie and all of that scavenging around for, you know, different things to do with these nails. And, you know, we weren't living in the age of social media. So there really is very little photographic evidence of the genesis of this new form of nail art that came out of the 80s that fit, you know, the fashion of the time. Um, the the snakeskin came from shoes. So somehow they met a snakeskin <laughs> shoe manufacturer and that's how they were getting the snakeskin to put on the nails. And really all of the tools of the trade of acrylic art and even gel, you know, the drills come from the dental industry. The gel and the acrylic come from the dental industry. So there was a lot of experimentation that was happening at this time. Acrylic was brought into the nail salon before Mantrap, but there's always been, you know, this this really interesting kind of um, experimentation going on in nail art. So nothing's new. You right. know, it's so fun <laughs> like reading the hot new trends of 2021 in these pandemic times. And a lot of them have been done before, but really nail art has just blossomed and skyrocketed, not even blossomed, skyrocketed to a new level because of social media and how we're able to share nail art and ideas so quickly these days. So it's really kind of breaks my heart that I don't have more photo evidence of this nail art of the 80s and 90s. I think it's in um, private collections, you know, just, just individuals that were doing nails at that time that decided to take an analog camera, you know, and photograph what they were doing. But I'm on a hunt for that trove. I can talk about that later. Well, there you go, trust listeners. If you have any of that residing in your personal collection, please share um, with Adele. So you interview Charlie Vo and Olivette Robinson. They're just two of this incredibly colorful cast of individuals that you introduce us to throughout the film. Um, your father's another. Um, so many wonderful people who all share their own unique story and perspective. 
Are there any stories in particular that you would like to share? Maybe a storyline that didn't make the film? Yeah, I mean, often I felt that the film was kind of competing with itself. I didn't know that much about the Vietnamese nail salon when I started researching the project. So from my understanding, um, from kind of a left point of view, who didn't, as a person who didn't get their nails done a lot inside the salon, I thought I was chasing a story about chemical exposure and toxicity inside the salon. And I certainly don't want to downplay that threat, but it's not what I encountered. What I encountered was this incredible historical journey that takes us from, you know, the earliest days of Vietnamese American people en masse in the U.S. to what we represent today as second and third generation. So I, I wish that I had been able to find, you know, a second or third generation female manicurist working in their parents or grandparents salon today. Um, I found that person subsequent to wrapping up Nailed It, but you'll see that I have a lot of men in the film. And that's just something curious about perhaps my style or who was attracted to me or who opened up to me. But I do wish that I had been able to find um, a young woman who is perhaps starting her, her own man trap legacy with a cast of multiracial partners, specifically another Black woman who is integrated into the nail culture. I would really love to see that happen. I don't see it quite happening yet, but, you know, that would be kind of my, my dream sequel to Nailed It. Like where this thing is going with this new generation of Gen Z millennial Vietnamese manicurists who aren't so tied specifically to other Vietnamese people that speak Vietnamese because they're raised here in the U.S. I just wish I could have really experienced what the culture was like inside of the Man Trap Salon. I think that I could make a whole other film about that. Just what that scene was like, what the mixing of cultures was like, and really analyzing why more uh, Black women didn't get into manicuring. Why was it that their staff was completely Vietnamese? Because that really set a tone for how the nail salon played itself out in the rest of the country, and also um, our perception of what the nail salon is, which is Asian. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of talked about it a little bit. Um, but I mean, when making a documentary, I can imagine that you might start out with an idea. And once you start doing all your research and you start meeting all these people that you've interviewed, things can change. And how did your narrative evolve with the people you met? Did it kind of change where your documentary was going? When I met Olivet Robinson, there was this verification that where I thought the nail salon came from, which is the Black community, was true. So I think, you know, it's really important for documentary filmmakers to follow their instinct. But that story surprised and shocked me. Not just to be a story, to know that this industry, this huge industry that supported so many people and is really a part of our culture, comes from a partnership and love between um, the Black and Asian community. Uh, it also made me sad in a way that we haven't seen that relationship 
replicated over the years and really made me question these divisions in our culture between Black and Asian people. Um, I see a lot of the divide and conquer mentality that has shaped the way that we think about each other in the world and prevented us from building economic wealth and generational wealth between our two communities. And that's really come to a head today in uh, the struggle for Black Lives Matter um, and the political reckoning that we've gone through for the, over the past four years of Trump that was really brewing before that and who we really are as American people. And nailed it not only enlightened audience to these relationships that you just talked about and this rich history, of course, but also in many ways combated harmful stereotypes and stigmas specifically about Vietnamese culture and people. Was that part of your intention when making this film? My intention was always to reveal the Vietnamese American story after the war. Um, Of course, the war will always be with us, but there are very few, if any, narratives that actually show uh, normalized Vietnamese American people living in the U.S. and what that looks like. I just think that became more important the more I researched and started producing this story that people really don't know where we come from. People don't really understand each other, period. We don't ask each other enough questions. So we go into these nail salons and we spend hours with this group of people that we know very little about. Um, And that comes from the work, that comes from Vietnamese people being guarded, so not necessarily just giving away this information or talking about it because it could be entangled with a lot of trauma as well, or perhaps just wanting to be seen as um, American or just being okay with that social divide between the client and the manicurist. And I think if we understood more about each other's backgrounds, um, our generational traumas, the legacy of slavery in this country, for one thing, would really help Vietnamese people understand the Black American struggle and where we all fit into in the construct of white supremacy in the U.S. I think that there is kind of an instinct for Vietnamese people to think that we really pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and that we've done this by ourselves and that, you know, there's a hierarchy of clients, like the less they're paying, the less that you have to respect them, or this sort of person is going to act this kind of way in a salon and to not understand anything about their background and vice versa. I've been in salons where clients have come in and just completely abuse their Asian manicurist because they're just assuming that they're this one kind of way inside of a salon, um, kind of perpetrating this capitalistic financial, taking advantage of a community that they don't belong to and don't clearly don't want to be a part of. So I think that if these conversations about race and personal histories were coming up naturally inside of salons, we wouldn't have the problems that we perceive are happening inside these spaces. One of the things that surprised me most in making this film are the deep, long-lasting relationships between manicurists and their clients that completely obliterated 
any kind of perception I had about racism inside of the salon. Um, and this perhaps is not the norm, but that's exemplified by the relationship that Kelvin St. Fam has with his clients that he's been seeing for over 25 years. So it's important for people to be able to contextualize that with the perception and stereotypes that they have of, you know, the stereotypical Asian nail salon in the hood. Both of those realities can exist at the same time. And right now in this world, it's important to see um, where we come together and how we love each other inside of these spaces. And something I was pretty surprised about the documentary was that you interview the comedian Angela Johnson. Um, what made you decide to interview her? I mean, she's pretty famous or known for her impersonations of Vietnamese nail salons. Um, would you like to speak to that? Yes, the voice, the Asian <laughs> voice, the specifically Vietnamese accented voice inside the salon. And I think my interviewing her is perhaps the biggest sticking point um, with a lot of Asian people, young people, because they don't like her. They don't want to see her in this space, just being able to sort of abscond from any kind of responsibility for making fun of these people. But, you know, for Kelvin, for example, like he finds Angela Johnson hilarious. There's a lot of Asian people, specifically Vietnamese people, who were attracted to her act because she really nailed that accent. And what I was trying to bring out in that interview is that she was raised in San Jose around Vietnamese people. The Vietnamese people are literally a part of her family. And I think because we didn't get to stay on that interview long enough, we didn't go down that road. And perhaps she seems a little defensive because, you know, she has love for this group of people, but she's also gotten famous for making fun of the accent. But the reason it was such a hit is because it's so spot on because she grew up with more Vietnamese people than I did, for example, inside the nail salon. And if you've ever been to San Jose, um, it has the second largest population of Vietnamese American people uh, in California. So it's a part of the culture. And that's why I wanted to interview her because although she's not Vietnamese, she is the voice of the nail salon and she is so divisive in this age of and cultural reckoning that we're going through. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion. And their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. 
dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives. But what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This film is the highest streamed of PBS's American Reframe series. I'm not surprised in the least. Can you talk a little bit about the response to this film? Did it surprise you? Was it positive, negative? I would say what surprised me is how much this film touches people who, whose lives revolve around the nail salon or who have any kind of social understanding about what goes on inside the nail salon. They're so touched and surprised by it. And that really shows me that we need to dig deeper about the everyday people in our lives um, and understand where they come from and where we connect. I'd say really the the most heartwarming responses have been from young Vietnamese women who grew up in the nail salon or just in the world as a Vietnamese person and not seeing their story reflected anywhere. I've also gotten really amazing responses from Black women who are really wanting to see this story reflected in popular culture and to understand where the nail salon came from and to ha- give to have a space to talk about what it represents to them. So that just shows me that these conversations need to be happening more. And sometimes when you don't speak the same native language as another person, a wall automatically goes up. And that didn't happen for Charlie and Olivet. They were able to, you know, break through that language barrier and develop a really deep friendship that was based also on their mutual survival. So what do you hope people take away from Nailed It ultimately? What I really hope that people take away from the film is that the Black community and the Vietnamese community are integrally connected through the nail salon. And we can analyze the negative aspects of that story ad nauseum, but there is a very deep connection that needs to be explored and this film is really the starting point. So we can get back to that man trap story of two different cultures coming together and building an empire that buoyed an entire population of people and is still supporting their children and grandchildren today. And, you know, 
taking it a step further and see where these two groups can develop more uh, generational wealth building, especially if they're based in Black communities. So I hope that this film allows people to open up more about their personal experiences and encourage the people around them to look deeper than just what's on the surface because there is a host of lost memories that I'm trying to preserve in my documentary work and that just blossom inside of the nail salon space. Adele, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today to share this behind-the-scenes look at your incredible documentary film. Before I let you go, would you mind sharing with our listeners what you're working on now? Yeah, um, the most relevant project to Nailed It is a virtual nail salon museum. Like I said, uh, I would love to connect with any of your audience members that may have, you know, a personal archive of nail art from the 80s and 90s. And I would like to build a virtual space where these different voices and histories can come together in dialogue together. I'm working on that with another um, producer director named Michaela Holland, who specifically produces VR films. So it's just another museum repository for this incredible history um, and these unknown stories to live. And I would like to to build those stories and this this archive that I have yet to find of what you know this early nail art really looked like inside these Vietnamese and Black spaces in the 80s and 90s that influenced the world of nails as we know it today. And thus is the power of social media. I mean, I feel like you you will be able to access that just by simply putting out this call because it connects you with people all over the world um, that can now share, hopefully share their, their personal collections and photographs with you. Where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at nailedit.doc. Nailed it, D-O-C. You can post my contact information on the webpage. Um, yeah, it's pretty easy to find me if you search my name, Adele, A-D-E-L-E-P-H-A-M. I'm also working on another feature documentary called State of Oregon about the history of racial exclusion, white supremacy, and the current Black Lives Matter movement in Oregon, in Portland, where I'm from. That started out as a short that I directed and produced with Field of Vision. So right now I'm expanding that into a feature documentary and launching my own podcast about politically what's happening for people of color in Oregon. Wow, well, keep us posted. We'll definitely keep our eyes and ears open for these future projects. Adele, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. This was a great conversation. Adele, thank you so much for being here. What incredible stories and insights, Cass. I mean, really, she is such an incredible and gifted storyteller. And really, we only touched on a few of the elements highlighted in the documentary. One of my favorite parts from the film are when she interviews the Vietnamese women who pioneered the nail salon in America in the 1970s. And this was after, as she talks about, meeting with Tippi Hedren and Dusty Coots. But as she shows, Hedren and Coots were merely the spark that ignited the entrepreneurial spirit of these women and the many that followed in their footsteps. It really is such an incredible story. And I hope all our listeners... We'll head to nailedit.com to rent and watch this film. We will, of course, provide a link in our show notes. Yes. And I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. 
May you consider the legacy of all these amazing women next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So please email us at dress at irmedia.com if you'd like to write to us. Or you can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. You can also follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we appreciate your support. And as always, special thanks to yourselves and our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. More dress coming your way on Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.